Amen. Thank you, Jerry and Emily. Very nicely done. Thank you for that. That was a blessing. John chapter number 8 in our Bibles this morning. John chapter number 8. And it has been a, a joy and a privilege to preach through the book of John. And I must say that this passage is a, a challenging passage. I don't know about you, but through the years, this passage has been weaponized by both saved and unsaved people alike. I've read and I've heard, seen articles, met people who love to throw verses out from this passage, particularly verse number 11. And there have been people who have basically tried to excuse all sorts of sins and tried to use John 8 verses 1 through 11 as their excuse, their spiritual rationalization for their wrong choice, their sinful activity. And they've misrepresented Christ from this passage. The unsaved sometimes will even use this passage against Christians. They, they don't claim to have any spiritual life or any relationship with Jesus Christ, but then they'll try to cherry pick a verse or two out of this passage and then use it against Christians when they don't even submit themselves to the Word of God. So I can't dispel every criticism or, or every nuance of, of rationalization that, that people have used from this passage, but I do want to look at this passage and we're going to deal with some of the, the, the verses and, and go a little, a little deep in some places, Lord willing, with God's help, and really help us understand the, the Christ in this passage. It is, this passage is about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, many times, this passage has become about us. It's become about me. It's become about me wanting to get away with things that I want to do that would not honor and please the Lord. And we, we miss Christ often in this passage. So I want us to see, first of all, the setting, the setting for the conflict. We'll see this reoccurring theme as we continue in our study through the book of John. Because remember, the Jews, made up primarily of religious leaders, that group of people, the Jews, as John identifies them, they are in opposition to Christ. They are resisting Christ. John has made it clear that their desire is to take Jesus, to imprison him, to murder him, to kill him. In, in the, the previous chapter, there was another attempt, another futile attempt, as they sent arresting officers who came to their conviction and went back. And Nicodemus, who seems to be giving some indication that he may have already trusted Christ as his Savior by John chapter number 7. We're not uh, completely sure, but Nicodemus stands up to the Sanhedrin and defends Christ saying, we are not following the law if we arrest Jesus without following due process. And so Nicodemus even speaks up. And that's where we left off a couple of weeks ago in John 7, in verse 52, they answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. They have nothing left to say. They go back to Nicodemus and they say, who are you? You consider yourself a scholar. Don't you know that nothing good comes out of Galilee? Throwing out this, this same old wrong idea that nothing good, no prophet would ever come out of Galilee. And they weren't even 
following the history of Israel, where even Jonah was from Galilee, and another Old Testament prophet. Uh, his name escapes me at the moment. So they just throw out this nonsensical argument to, to try to resist Nicodemus, who stands up for, for Christ and the law. And that brings us to verse 53, and every man went unto his own house. Now remember, the, the setting is the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And now the Feast of Tabernacles comes to an end, and people begin to disperse. They begin to go back to their homes. And the, in verse 53, the, the mention there is of every man going unto his own house. But in chapter 8 and verse 1, we pick up with Jesus going, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives there near Jerusalem. And remember, the foxes have holes, the birds have nests, but the Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head. Jesus goes up into the mountain. He doesn't have a mansion. He doesn't have a palace. He doesn't have exclusive VIP treatment at the local Airbnb or whatever it, it would be in our modern world. He, he goes into the Mount of Olives. He goes to a place of rest and no doubt prayer. He goes, no doubt, to commune with his Heavenly Father and to rest, humanly speaking, being the God-man, in preparing for the next, if I can say it this way, in a sense, the next fight. Knowing that there is increasing persecution, there is increasing resistance, what does Jesus do? And early in the morning, I know for some people that is a nasty phrase, early in the morning. I know mornings, good mornings is a contradiction of terms for some people. I love mornings, and uh, I know that I don't get up even as early as some of you do, but I love mornings. Mornings are refreshing, and, the, and they're, they're just something about a, a morning. I was joking around with Emily. She was talking about her non-breakfast going at college. And I said, I work night cleanup at college, and I still went to breakfast at least three days a week. And uh, there was a certain path that I took from the dining common back to my dorm room, and I just enjoyed that 15-minute walk, especially on a beautiful uh, Greenville, South Carolina morning. And I would pray, and I would sing to myself, and I know there were some people who probably passed me, and they're like, what is wrong with that guy? Uh, but uh, I, loved, I loved those, those walks back to my dorm room. Uh, in the morning. And I, I love uh, even uh, now getting up and we have a beautiful backyard and, and the, the window and every once in a while we'll have a, uh, an animal visitor. But uh, it, the mornings are, are, are a, special, a special time. And I'm not saying that you're not spiritual if you're not a morning person. I'm just saying that there's something about the early morning. And Jesus got up early in the morning and, and, and did, he, did he run from the, the trial that was to come? Did he run from, in a sense, the fight? Did he run from the persecution? No, he went right back to the temple where he had been teaching. He went right back to the place knowing it was God's will for him to continue to teach, to continue to share the gospel, to continue to minister to those people even though there was a group that was resisting. And early in the morning, verse 2 says, He came again into the temple and all the people came unto him. There was a crowd. And that word all probably makes reference to all different groups and types of people from all around. Some had left already to go back home from the feast. 
but there was still a sizable group and they knew there was word, there, was, there had been word spread. Jesus had been in the temple there teaching during the feast and they probably came back looking, hoping that Jesus would be there because he spoke with power and authority. No man spake like this man. They knew that there was something special about Jesus. Some we even read in John 7, some among the crowd trusted Christ. They, they even spoke and said, no man will perform miracles like this man. This has to be the Messiah. A reminder of how Jesus brings people to himself from all different backgrounds and walks of life. And there are people who are saved as a young child. There are some who are saved later in life after they do some measure of investigation and looking here and there, trying to figure out if Christianity is real. There are some people who are brought under extreme conviction during a revival meeting or a church service. Some are saved at home under their their, their parents' uh, tutelage and witness. And we are thankful for one of our young people uh, just coming to Christ and giving testimony of that Wednesday night. We thank the Lord for that. People come to Christ from all different backgrounds and walks of life. They all come the same way in repentance and faith. They all come trusting Christ by faith alone, in Him alone, and not by works of righteousness, for by grace are ye saved through faith. But there's still this curiosity among the crowd, and they come and they gather, and he's teaching there in the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them, and then, sure enough, verse 3, who shows up? And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. With the feast over, Jesus came again to teach in the temple as he had been doing. We understand from verse number 20 that this area of the temple was near the treasury. It was called the court of women. It was a place that even the the women had open and public access to. And while he's teaching, what do the religious leaders, what do this group of antagonistic Jews, what do they do? They interrupt. I don't know exactly how they interrupted, but Jesus is there teaching. He's sharing the gospel with the crowd. He's preaching to them, ministering to them, and then they just kind of barge in. It sounds like they just interrupted the whole thing. And they're dragging this woman with them. And they sat her in the midst. And they say, this woman is caught, was caught, was taken in adultery in the very act. They had enough respect to at least refer to Christ as master. But in their hearts, they were seething. In their hearts, they hated him. The Jews knew what the punishment was for adultery, for sexual immorality. The Jews no doubt knew Leviticus 20 in verse number 10. Deuteronomy 22 in verse 22. The Mosaic law required capital punishment particularly by stoning for sexual immorality, for adultery. That was the law. God knew how defiling sexual immorality would be. God knows how poisonous the sin of sexual immorality is to a culture, to a life, to a home, to a family, to the larger culture, to a church, and to society in general. And he had specific punishments, consequences, because God is a holy God. Yes, God is a God of love, but his love flows out of his holiness. And the Jews knew this law. They knew. They did not practice it consistently, 
But now they wanted Jesus to be the judge here. They brought this woman in. They claimed that she had been caught in the very act of adultery. And they knew that they could try to trap Jesus. If they brought her and they interrupted and forced Jesus to have to make a decision, to make a judgment. So that's the setting of the conflict. But secondly, let's see the strategy of the opponents. The strategy of the opponents. This was a specific strategy. There was something that they were trying to accomplish here. Now, Moses in the law, verse 5 says, commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? Verse 6, this they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. The strategy of the opponents, the strategy of these Jews, these religious leaders who were actively persecuting Jesus, looking for a reason to throw him in prison, to murder him. So far, their strategy to just go marching in or to send those officers in, those Levites that we talked about in chapter 7, so far their strategy had failed. They were unable to take him. Now they're going to have to try a different strategy. They're going to have to adjust their strategy. They're going to try to trap Jesus in various questions regarding the scriptures, regarding the law. Now their strategy is to try to trip Jesus up, to get him to contradict the law, to try to get him to contradict scripture. And we'll see that pattern over and over again. So there's no righteous motive here. They're not coming with this question about this woman caught in adultery because they desire to understand the law or the purpose of the law or to know the God who gave the law better or to know God's Son, Jesus Christ, better. Sadly, their motive, their motive was vile. Their motive was full of hatred and indignation toward Jesus. And that, that, that says a lot sometimes about what people are trying to do with the Word of God. Here they are. They're trying to claim allegiance to the Word of God. Their motive, their motive was cruel and evil and sinful. That's the depravity of man's heart on display. See, if Jesus condemned this woman to be stoned, there would be questions of his forgiveness and his mercy. But also, there was a due process required by the law, specifically two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 19 and verse 15. Those who were accused had to make appearance before a judge. And we know that in this particular context, at this time in Jewish history, there was even the Jewish Sanhedrin, the council, that would deal with matters of the law that the Romans didn't particularly want to deal with. Remember, Nicodemus spoke to that Sanhedrin in chapter 7. He had just stood up in defense of the law and of Jesus. So that Sanhedrin, that Jewish council, had some jurisdiction here. So we're, we're looking at several different factors that as they condemn her to be stoned, or if Jesus condemned her to be stoned, 
There was going to be questions about his mercy and his forgiveness. There would be questions about the due process of the law and whether Jesus was following the law according to the principles of the law regarding accusers and witnesses. What about the appearance before a judge? What about the appearance before the council? And then isn't there a piece of information missing? Isn't this the way it often is? Isn't it, you know, journalism today, journalism today for, for the mainstream media isn't much journalism anymore. Sadly, it's, it's, it's biased. There is a narrative, and it's all about a certain narrative, a certain agenda. And isn't it, isn't it sad now we have to have fact checkers and even the liberals, even the, uh, the, the unsaved, now they're fact checking each other, and even their fact, check, even their fact checkers are wrong. Even their fact checkers need to be fact checked, right? It's just ridiculous. There's this, there's this, this, this desire for truth, and yet everybody individualizes truth, my truth. So how do we ever get to a consensus? How do we really ever submit to a standard of truth and an absolute standard? And that's really what it ends up being all about, a refusal to submit to God's standard, God's truth. But here they are, and they're violating even the, 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 the very law that they claim to be allegiance to, that they claim allegiance to, that they claim to be strict adherents to and followers of. But isn't it interesting that they leave out the man? Caught in the very act of adultery. But where's the man? Where's he at? They didn't bring him. So now it makes... And I can't be dogmatic, and I can't surmise too much, but it, it makes me wonder, was this all a setup? Did they even orchestrate? Did they even pay off this couple so that they could take them and bring them before Jesus? Was the man part of their group of religious leaders? They were in the cover-up. They themselves were involved in adultery and immorality. We know that they were corrupt behind the scenes. There's all these things that you begin to wonder. But the point is, they weren't following due process. They weren't following the law. They were leaving out evidence. And from what we understand in the historical context, even Roman law required intervention of Roman authorities before the death penalty could be enacted. So the Jewish Sanhedrin may be able to advise, the Jewish Sanhedrin may be able to vote and to rule on a particular Jewish law or violation of it and say this person needs to die, but understanding the historical context, Roman authorities would probably have to get involved before that person would ever be put to death. So there's a lot going on here. And now in that moment, trying to back Jesus into a corner, trying to catch him, unawares or catch him in a contradiction and cause him to somehow violate the law in their minds. Here Jesus' answer, we'll see in just a few moments, the, the skillful response of his answer. But before we get there, we, we must see that in their minds, in their minds, if Jesus didn't condemn this woman for her adultery, then he was also in violation of the law in their minds. Surely Jesus would condemn her for her adultery. They're trying to set up these arguments and pit them against one another. Surely they're going to catch Jesus in this, this, this argument, this violation of the law, either with 
the, the, the woman not being condemned for adultery or with him just letting her, her free. They're, surely they've got him trapped in their minds. But even if, even if Jesus didn't condemn her right then and there in that moment, would that make Jesus worthy of capital punishment, worthy of them taking him and murdering him? That's what they were seeking. They came with hatred in their hearts, a desire to murder him. This whole thing is messed up. There's really not true desire for biblical justice on the part of the religious leaders. So it's a, it's a futile attempt. It's a futile attempt by these Jews, these religious leaders, to pit Jesus' authority against Moses' authority. Once again, we come back to this principle of authority. Here we are again, and they have already tried to use Moses as the authority, and Jesus has already won that argument. Jesus had already revealed that Moses' authority came from God. The manna that came from heaven was from God. Moses was just the one in between, the mediator in between that God allowed to pray and to ask for and to call for that manna. But that manna was from God. Moses' authority came from God. Moses was God's chosen man at that time. But Jesus had already won this argument about authority. He had revealed that Moses' authority came from God and that he himself is God's son, God in the flesh, verified by his perfect life, his miracles, and the power and the authority of his teaching. He had already given witnesses. He had already declared his deity. The miracles verified along, along with six other witnesses. So once again, what does it come down to? Once again, as it so often does, what does it all boil down to? My pride. The pride of the religious leaders. Our willingness to submit. The willingness, in this case, these religious leaders, in their pride, they were unwilling to see their sinfulness. They were unwilling to see their need of repentance and submission to Christ for their salvation and their spiritual life. And here they are in their stubbornness. They are trying in another way, in another strategy, resorting to another extreme tactic to resist and to persecute God's people and to resist God's word. And in some cases, in some ways, that has not changed. Though the faces may have changed, the names may have changed, we, see, we still see that spirit of Antichrist in our culture today. We still see the same kind of evil strategy in the end arounds and the twisting of Scripture and the denial of God's authority and trying to pit Christians against God's authority and coming up with these fallacious arguments to try to trap believers. We see it in the abortion argument. We see it in all kinds of different issues of the day where the unsaved world has a strategy that is ultimately antagonistic toward and rebellion toward the word of God and toward God himself and his son, Jesus Christ. So we've seen the setting of the conflict, the strategy of the opponents. And then thirdly, as I mentioned just a minute ago, we see the skillful response of Christ, the skillful response of Christ. Jesus turns the tables on them. 
They were wanting Jesus to condemn this woman to death, but they in their hearts were actively trying to murder him, an innocent man, a sinless man. The hypocrisy is so blatant, it's disgusting. And I think we've all met people or been around or in situations where the hypocrisy is just so obvious and it just angers us. There's something about hypocrisy sometimes that just boils our blood, doesn't it? And we see it all the time. We see it all the time from politicians. Two sets of standards. Different rules apply to different people in different situations. Violating their own rules, violating their own principles or lack thereof. And they get on screen, they get on their press conferences, and we see it from the politicians to the celebrities to the actors, and sometimes, sadly, it's in our own homes of professing Christians, where the kids see right through it, where we watch it on TV, on the news, and we just sit there and we're just disgusted because of the hypocrisy. It's so blatant, it is appalling. They were right then in their hoping to arrest and murder an innocent man. And yet they're trying to catch Jesus in some sort of contradiction about this woman caught in adultery who they very well may have set up in the first place. So what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say there in verse number 6? Well, first of all, he says nothing at all. His response is to stoop down. And with his finger right on the ground as though he heard them not. Now we do that sometimes as parents, don't we, or as grandparents. The kids come in and they're squabbling about something. Or you sometimes have two or three of them and they're all going at the same time. Or maybe it's in a classroom setting or at recess. And the kids come and they're all and they're just pointing fingers at each other. And they're going. And then sometimes what, what do we do as, as parents or grandparents? I know I've done this. And I've done this as, as a school principal or as a pastor even. There's just a, a moment of silence, right? There's just a, okay, everybody just chill. As we would say growing up, take a chill pill. <laughs> just calm down. Everybody just, and, and Jesus has a purpose. He, he, a soft answer turneth away wrath. We might even consider that principle here. Now there are some who, I've read several different commentaries, and it seems like everybody has some idea of what Jesus wrote on the ground. He wrote the name of all the accusers. I, had, uh, I read one commentator, and he just was almost certain that Jesus was, was writing Bible verses from the Old Testament about the finger of God. Um, there is a hearkening to Bel, uh, Belteshazzar when the writing, the finger of God, wrote on the wall about uh, the coming judgment on, on Belshazzar. We don't know. We can't be dogmatic. Scripture is, is really very silent as to what Jesus wrote on the ground. It was, a, it was a delay tactic. It was a soft answer turning away wrath. But we, we see this moment of silence, and then we see in verse 7, so when they continued asking him, they won't leave him alone. They just keep coming to him with this question. Verse 7, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. He stated, according to the law, Deuteronomy 13, 9, Deuteronomy 17, and verse 7, that the accusers were the ones, when there was a guilty judgment, it was the accusers who were to pick up the stones and be the first ones to begin casting the stones 
against the guilty party once that guilty verdict was reached. According to the law, it was the accusers who were to cast the first stones. When Jesus asked that question, verse 8, what does he do? He again stooped down and wrote on the ground. Again, there is silence. He bent down, he began writing on the ground with his finger, and again, we don't know exactly what he wrote, but the silence caused them to have to consider their motives and think about what they were doing, and there was conviction. We even read here that they were convicted by their own conscience. There was enough of the law of God written on their hearts that there was the Spirit of God convicting them and pointing to the law of God, to Scripture, and their conscience was convicted. Their conscience was pricked. Without getting on too much of a rabbit trail, this is why it's so important for our conscience to be biblically educated. We need our conscience to be scripturally informed. Jiminy Cricket had it wrong. We don't follow our own conscience. We don't follow our conscience. Let your conscience be your guide. That's actually not good advice. The Word of God must be our guide, and the Word of God must educate our conscience. It must inform our conscience. Our conscience is like a moral compass, and it has to point to something. So a compass points to true north, or polar north, or magnetic north, whatever it is. But the conscience, when biblically educated, the conscience should point to the commands, the principles, and the promises of the Word of God. That's why it's so important for our children at a young age to have a tender conscience and it be educated with the Word of God. So as they get older and as they take ownership of their decisions, of their principles, of their responsibilities, as they take ownership of those things, they take ownership of the principles, the commands, and the promises of the Word of God because their conscience is educated by the Bible so that their conscience will point them to the Word of God when they're in that moment of decision. Because mom and dad aren't going to be there all the time. We're not always going to be able to look over their shoulder. We can't be their little conscience. And we've seen you know, the devil on one side and the angel on the other. And there is a lot of misrepresentation there. But there was enough about the law that they understood that their conscience was pricked. And what happened? The accusers left one by one. They knew they had not followed due process of the law. They began to realize they were not going to succeed in their attempt to trick Jesus. The man that was also there involved in the adultery, he had not been brought. Where's the two or three witnesses? Where's the judge? Where's the due process again? And they came to the realization that they weren't going to be able to trick Jesus. He was smarter than, than them. He knew the law better than them. They began to realize this was a futile, another futile attempt. Again, this is, it's possible this was all just a setup. And they realized they weren't going to get away with it. And again, I can't help but think as a parent or sometimes in a position of authority and, and, and there's a, a, an accusation, there's this squabble, there's this argument... And then, in the case of Jesus, he just remained silent. And a soft answer turned away their wrath. And the Spirit of God convicted. But there have been times where I have even just hardly said a word. And either my kids or the, the students who I was dealing with or the church member, they, they begin to talk themselves out of their own argument, so to speak. The more they go on. I, I remember one time 
sitting in my office, and I, I think the man, I think the dad went on and on for probably 30 minutes, or, or, or the mom. I, I don't know, I've been in these situations more than once where the person comes in and they're just, they're, 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 they're just throwing flames. And they're just sitting there, and they're just going on and on and on and on and on and on. There was one dad in particular who came in quite, quite regularly. And I would just sit there, and I would just, for, after a while, I just didn't say a word. I just let him talk. And after about sometimes 20 or 30 minutes, he began to realize the stupidity of his own arguments. He began to talk himself out of his own. He realized he was talking way too much, and he wasn't making any sense, and he wasn't getting anywhere, and he just gave up. And I can't help, and again, I can't help but think, as Jesus is riding on the ground, they begin to realize, and obviously it was the Spirit of God, it was the conviction of the Holy Spirit, there was the conscience that had been at least somewhat informed by the law of God, and they began to walk away, they realized that they were futile in their attempt, that they were wrong in what they were doing, and they left till it was just Christ and this woman. We knew that we know that these individuals were hypocrites. They had hatred in their hearts toward Christ. They were actively looking for an opportunity to arrest and kill him. Yet Jesus quietly exposed their hypocrisy. Now let's think for a minute about hypocrisy. Who is a hypocrite? Right here. I'm going to raise my hand. First of all, I'm a hypocrite. You know what the definition of a hypocrite is? It's everyone some of the time. Now, there are some who are lifestyle hypocrites. The pattern of their life is nothing but hypocrisy. But we're all guilty of being a hypocrite. And I'm so tired of the argument, oh, I'm not going to come to church because I don't want to sit with all the hypocrites. Well, there's a part of me that wants to say, why don't you come and join us because you're one too. Because we all are in some way, shape, or form. All of us, at some moment, at some time, are hypocrites. I'm guilty as a father. Just ask my kids. Ask my wife. They, they know that there have been times I haven't been able to follow through with everything that I've said or I've wanted to do. Sometimes I open my big mouth and I have some ideas about what we're going to do and where we're going to go and what we're going to buy, and it just doesn't work. Sometimes it's just the change of circumstances, the change of plans, the providence of God. But sometimes it's just me. I just forgot what I said even. Or didn't follow through like I should have. But we're all hypocrites, at least some of the time. Does that mean that all sin is overlooked all the time? Or that no one is personally responsible for his or her, his or, or her own sin? So, because everyone speeds... I know, some of us, we never speed. We never go a mile over the speed limit, Right? I'm on my way to church this morning, and I'll admit I was going over the speed limit. I'm sorry, but this person was on my tail, and I wasn't going to change. I wasn't going to change lanes, and I wasn't going to go another five or ten miles faster. They, they couldn't stand. They were right on my tail. I'm like, sorry, you're just going to have to learn some patience this morning. But because everyone speeds at some point, the police have no authority to ever pull anybody over ever for speeding, right? As, I mean, I've been pulled over for speeding before, to my shame. I've been pulled over for speeding. Do, do, do I lean over to the police officer and say, look at all the thousands of people out there that are speeding right now at this very moment. You have no business pulling me over and giving me a ticket. Where would that go if I argued like that? That would be ridiculous. But that's the way some people argue. Because a thief or a murderer got away with their crime somewhere at some point, somehow, does that mean no thief, no murderer should ever be punished ever again? That's ridiculous. 
Absolutely ridiculous, but that's somehow, that sometimes that's how people look at this passage. Let he who is without sin cast a stone at her, first cast a stone at her. And people take that, rip that out of context, and they make it sound like Christ is all just, just this lovey-dovey, feel-good Savior who just lets us do whatever we want, whenever we want, and just pats us on the back and says, well, I hope it works out well for you. Is that the Savior that we serve? He's a God of love. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of forgiveness. But he's also a God of holiness and of judgment. And we see right there in verse 11, go and sin no more. The condemnation comes ahead of time. Neither do I condemn thee. He is not in a place at that moment. He's not the Sanhedrin. He's not the Roman authority. He's not the one who is the legal proponent. He's not the lawyer. He's not the jury. He's not in a place to enact the legal manifestation of the law. But he is the spiritual authority who refers to her adultery as sin, and he says, go and sin no more. Literally, it is in the present. Go and stop your sinning. That is literally what he is saying. He is calling her actions sin. And he is saying, stop it. No, he wasn't in a, in a place to legally condemn her to capital punishment. That's ultimately what the word condemn there is referring to. He was not in a place in the legal jurisdiction of the law to condemn her to capital punishment. But he was, as her spiritual advisor, we don't know if she got saved. Hopefully she walked away. We're not 100% sure. There, there's, there's debate as to whether she truly got saved. I hope and, and pray that she did that day. We don't know if she walked away with him as her Savior and Lord. But as her spiritual advisor, he said, stop the sinning. He calls what she was doing sin. People will come to this passage and they'll go to Matthew 7.1 and they'll, they'll say, judge not... When judge not means hypocritical condemnation of another person's sin. These religious leaders, they themselves could have been involved in immorality. They themselves were full of hatred toward Christ and wanted to murder him. How could they possibly condemn her? And they weren't even following the proper jurisdiction in the due process of the law. But we already looked at Matthew, or excuse me, John 7 and verse 24. Judge righteous judgment. We are to judge, we are to evaluate, and we are to discern by God's standards. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 21, prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Prove, test, discern, evaluate all things from a biblical perspective, and then grab hold of what is good. Lay hold of what is good. Know what God says is good and grab hold of it. But too often, we're grasping for all of the wrong. How can I hold on to the world with at least a little bit of a grasp and at the same time I can clutch on to Jesus? Well, the world keeps pulling, tugging us further and further away from the Lord. And our grasp of the Lord is getting looser and looser, sadly. Because we're not proving all things like we should and holding fast that which is good, as 1 Thessalonians 5.21 tells us. Jesus asks her, as we come to a close here, Jesus asks her where her accusers went. Woman, and that's a word of respect. That's a word of, that's like saying ma'am. 
That's, that's not woman. That's not a derogatory term. That is a term of respect. It's ma'am. Jesus said that with his mother, his earthly mother, Mary, in John 2, similar type of phrase. Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Jesus asks her where her accusers went. She said, no one remained to accuse her. He did not condone her sin. He did not excuse her lifestyle. He called it sin. He called that adultery, that sexual immorality, sin. The Bible tells us to flee fornication. We are told that we are to keep our vessel, our body, in sanctification and honor. We're told there to flee fornication. 1 Thessalonians 4, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. One of the problems, one of the arguments that's often overlooked in this whole abortion issue and pro-choice and pro-life is there are even some who would consider themselves pro-life who are not opposed to the sin of immorality or adultery. There's a sad, it's a sad day when the statistics and the surveys show that large, percentage, large percentages of professing Christians say there is nothing wrong with premarital sex. There's nothing wrong with two people living together before they're married. It's in the music. It's in the movies. It's in the videos. The immorality is rampant. It is idolized. It is exalted. And we as Christians have to, have to guard ourselves and defend ourselves and be offensive, not offensive in the sense of necessarily being of the wrong disposition in how we deal with it, but we have to be offensive with the Word of God to dispel the wrong ideas about immorality and adultery that is so prevalent in our culture, the sexual revolution, we are still paying the consequences for it. The fruit of the sexual revolution has now brought us to a point where kids are being transed, has brought us to a point now where we're not even declaring male and female biological realities. Jesus called her adultery, her immorality, he called it sin. And we must not forget that. This passage is often taken out of context. It's often used even by the unsaved against the saved or even among Christians. But Christ perfectly balanced the law and mercy in keeping with his sinless humanity and holy divinity. We've seen the setting. We've seen the strategy. And thank, thankfully, by the grace of God, as we have just studied, revealed in the word of God, the skillful response of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. May we be as skillful as we follow God's principles, as we follow the Word of God and stay faithful to the Word of God. May we have the right response in a wicked world to answer the sinful opinions, the sinful ideas, the false teachings. May we be able to answer with the wisdom and the spirit of Christ as we are faithful to his word, as we proclaim the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. 
Lord, I pray that you will help us. Lord, a passage that's often ripped out of context and taken and weaponized. Lord, may we see the glories of Jesus Christ and exalt you. And see, Lord, how you dealt so tenderly with a a woman in sin and yet did not in any way excuse her sin or condone her sin. Lord, may we see the, the sinfulness of our own heart and be repentant and come before you broken and contrite. Lord, help us in areas that we are thinking wrongly, that we have been mesmerized or deceived by the world. Lord, help us to have the compassion and the willingness to forgive and the mercy of Christ. Lord, there's so much that we can learn from this passage. Lord, apply your, your, your truth to our hearts, we pray. Lord, I pray that you do your work in our hearts, even as we sing this closing hymn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand to your feet and turn, uh, if you'll grab a hymnal and turn to 640, Abide With Me. We sang this song so wonderfully earlier. We'll sing stanza number four. Jake's going to come and lead us in the last stanza. Stanza number four of Abide, or that's not the last stanza, but stanza number four of Abide With Me. If God is speaking to your heart. You can do business with the Lord even uh, as we sing. If we can help you in any way afterward, we'd be happy to do so. But Jake's going to come and lead us in stanza number four of Abide With Me. I fear no foe. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Thank you for your faithfulness, and we look forward to being back tonight at 5 o'clock, as we'll hear from uh, Brother Caleb Wagner as he'll present his ministry. You can stop by his table even uh, before you leave today and uh, see his ministry there, but we look forward to being back at 5 o'clock tonight to hear from him, and uh, we're thankful for what the Lord is doing uh, in our church. Thank you again for your faithfulness and your attendance this morning. I hope that you have a wonderful afternoon. We'll ask uh, Brother Earl Burkott to close us in prayer. He and uh, his wife have been uh, doing some traveling, but it's good to have you home, Earl. I'll ask that you close us in prayer before dismissed. That's right. Our prayers to God and the loving Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ and the pastor is preached from your word this morning. Jesus, in this setting, did not condemn this woman, but he didn't command her to congratulate her either. That's right. He called her out of her sin. That's right. He does that all the time.
Amen. Have a good afternoon. We love you. Have a good afternoon. We'll see you tonight.